Welcome to the Search for Truth podcast, where we take a look at the Word of God and its authentic application to our lives. I'm Pastor Young, and in our daily Bible studies, we will ask the question, what is truth? Where do I fit in the story? And what is God saying to the church? So grab a Bible and enjoy. Word up! Pastor Young here with another daily Bible study. If you'll open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday. Uh, In yesterday's lesson, we talked about why it is that God would allow Saul, knowing what kind of king he would be, to become anointed. We uh, have looked at the difference in Saul and David just a little bit. And uh, we're starting to now see the characteristics of Saul's reign in Israel. So uh, this is, we're going to pick up today in 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you'll open your Bibles with me. 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says that Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel whereof 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So they're, they're working with a very small number, in, in honesty. I know that might sound like a lot, but it's really not, especially whenever you consider that there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers uh, that took down Jericho. Uh, they're, they're just using a couple thousand. It says in verse 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Jeba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, (laughs) and that Israel also was, was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Uh, I, I know you noticed that. That in verse 3 it says, Jonathan smote. Jonathan is the one that's winning these battles. Jonathan is the one uh, who he and his men uh, take out the garrison, the, the military force of the Philistines. And yet in verse 4, Saul, uh, Saul blows the trumpet, let all the Hebrews hear, verse 4, and they heard how Saul smote the garrison of the Philistines. Saul's taking credit for Jonathan's victories. Interesting. Interesting. Now, when that happens, whenever someone takes credit for someone else's victories, the enemy is sure to test whoever it is that's been bragging. The enemy will immediately say, all right, since you're so big, since you're so bad, we'll see about that. Verse five, so the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. They united and they pulled together 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash. Look at this. 
Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, whenever they saw that they were, uh, Israel's in trouble because the Philistines are in this military rank. They're, they're in formation. They're ready to march. The Israelites say, uh-oh. It says, for the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. Look at that. It's interesting how whenever Saul was trying to be anointed, or whenever God was trying to anoint Saul, rather, Saul is found hiding among the stuff. Remember that. Saul is hiding in his moment to act, in his moment to finally take his place, in his moment to finally you know, be used of God, to win the victory, to, to be the guy God's called him to be, and Saul is hiding. And under his reign, the people begin to do exactly the same thing as their king. When it is time for the people of God to come uh, out to battle, when it's time for the people of God to finally be used, to finally win the victory, to finally, you know, defeat the Philistines, when it is time for them to emerge, the people do exactly what their king does. They hide. Okay, now, we know that immediately after this, I mentioned this yesterday, that Saul offers a sacrifice unto the Lord because Samuel took too long to get there. Now, I don't know about you. We're going to read through this account very briefly. But this reminds me of Aaron and Moses. Uh, Moses goes on the mountaintop for 40 days. And he takes longer to get down than what Aaron wanted, you know. And, uh, and, and we know that Aaron creates the golden calf. Aaron goes off on his own. He does his own thing, you know. Uh, verse 8 uh, of chapter 13. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And I know what you might be thinking. Well, what's wrong with that? Who cares if Saul is offering a burnt offering unto God or not? I'll tell you, this is not the office of the king. This is the office of the priest. This is the office of the prophet. And Saul is going out on his own. Saul is doing what he thinks is best. Remember, that is exactly what the reign of Saul symbolizes for Israel. I'm going to let you see what happens whenever you do what you think is best rather than seeking after what God thinks is best. Saul is overreaching right now, beyond his office, beyond where he is called to be. And, uh, and verse 10, verse 10, And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. This shows us that Saul uh, is not ashamed, he's not embarrassed. Uh, Saul has, as you know, according to him, he's got nothing to be ashamed of. No reason to think that Samuel might not be happy. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? Wait, what? I just offered sacrifices, right? Uh, this, this should remind you of Aaron and Moses. This is the same exact question that Moses asks Aaron. Whenever he shows up to Aaron, he didn't say what's up. He says, Aaron, what have you done, right? And then look at this. Saul said, because I saw the people were scattered from me. That's, that's very similar to what Aaron said. It was the people. They told me they needed to, to have a God to worship, right? Okay, look at this. Uh, 
And Saul, in verse 12, he says, I forced myself. (laughs) It was really out of my control. I forced myself to offer a burnt offering. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Samuel saying, The Lord is trying, you big dope, to anoint you, to use you. But you do things your own way. And that's not the type of person that God's going to use. But now, verse 14, thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. You see, uh, a lot of times we we think about David being a man after God's own heart uh, just just to be a compliment towards David. But it's more than that. This is saying... Since you were not after my heart, you were after your own heart. You were following after your own desires. Now, so I I don't want to use that. What I would rather use, now I'm going to look for somebody who won't follow their own heart, somebody who's going to follow after my heart. You see, man, there's t-shirts, there's hoodies, there's bumper stickers everywhere. And it's this stupid phrase and it says, follow your heart just follow your heart. Well, I got news for you, folks. Your heart will lead you into some dangerous situations. Your heart will lead you into destructive relationships. Your heart will lead you into adulterous affairs. Your heart will lead you into into bad financial decisions. Your heart, and I believe you could probably say an amen right there a few times. Your heart The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, is desperately wicked. It says, who can know it? It says, there's a way which seemeth to be right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That what this is saying is, as long as you are just following your instinct, you are not going to be the type of person God is willing to use. The Lord is not looking to uh, to use somebody who's just doing what you think is best He's looking to you, somebody who is saying, Lord, what do you say is best? This is the difference between intelligence and wisdom. This is the difference between instinct and anointing. One seeks after what the flesh has has sniffed out and said, I'm going to add it up. I'm working in the gift of suspicion. I've decided uh, I've decided that this is the right thing to do. And the other says, Lord, I can't decide what's right. You have got to decide what's right. So reveal to me. And when you reveal it to me, that's what I'm doing. And that's when I'm going. You see, it is not just a compliment towards David saying that he just has this particular personality. But God referring to David as a man after his own heart is a slight to Saul as well, saying, you're not a guy after my heart, so I'm, cho- I'm looking for somebody that is. Now, uh, we press on. The, the Philistines have gathered, and they're posing a major threat to the Israelites. Think about this. I want you to imagine it in your head. You've got 30,000 chariots. Uh, I, just think about it. You know, see yourself in this great valley. You know, uh, they, they would typically do, do battle in a great valley. And off on, the, off on the hill, on the horizon, I want you to imagine 30,000 chariots. And then behind those chariots up, nestled up on the hill, you see 6,000 
horsemen, okay? 6,000 of these big brutes and they're, they're riding their, their horses and, you know, the, the horses are, you know, and they're, they're, they're kicking up and they're doing this. And, and, and then I want you to imagine that behind the horsemen, it, the Bible says, a people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. That has now gathered in the battlefield facing you. And you look around, and according to verse 15, Saul had with him about 600 men. You're looking around, and then you're looking forward, and, uh, okay, we're very critical. (laughs) We're very critical. Uh, And I am myself, by the way. I'm very critical about these people that hide and these people that they climb in the caves and in the pits and they're they're in trees and you know I'm very critical of them I have to admit it I'm very critical but you know if I'm looking around and I and I only see 600 people on my side and I see 36,000 plus a multitude like the sand on the seashore just on the other side of the valley I'm just gonna say I don't know if I would have passed a cave up so let's look, at, let's look at what all takes place here, okay? It says, And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, okay? It says, One company turned into the way that lead to, to Ophrah on the land of Shual. The other company turned to the way of Beth Haran, and another company turned to the border that looks to the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. So these, these three factions break off of the Philistines, and they come unto the camps of the Israelites. And uh, let's, let's, talk, let's talk for just a second about what a spoiler is. A spoiler for, uh, for the Philistines, at least, they were like a special ops group. They were, they were special forces. Um, but the, the spoilers were not, they were not obvious. Okay, so what I'm saying is these spoilers, they, they were... They were created, their, their groups were created with the intention of them to blend in. There wouldn't be a lot of them. There'd just be a few. And they had one intention, and that was to blend in to their surroundings. They came into the camp of Israel for one purpose, all right? You could, it was very difficult to detect a spoiler. It would be very similar to a spy, right? They came in, and uh, they would come... And, and they weren't an obvious enemy. Look, if somebody shows up at my doorstep and they're wearing a breastplate and they're wearing a helmet and they're wearing, and they got a shield in one hand and they're swinging a sword at me with their other hand, folks, I don't have to pray and ask God, hey, is this my enemy? I don't have to. I know right off the bat, that's probably my enemy. But the spoilers on the other hand, they did not show up with a sword and a shield and a spear and a helmet. They didn't show up like that. They show up, they show up wearing uh, Israelite clothing. They show up with Jewish haircuts. They show up, you know, with, uh, with, the, with the yarmulke on. And they show up 
don't check that. I don't know if that's, I don't know if they were doing that yet. But anyways, they show, they show up, you know, bearing shoe bread and they show up, you know, coming up talking about, hey guys, isn't Jehovah great? You know, they come up and, and they're like, what's the scuttlebutt? Uh, y'all, have y'all heard about what's going on with Saul? And everybody said, who's the, who's the new guy? And they said, I don't know. Ain't he, isn't he Josephine's cousin? They say, is Josephine's cousin, is he, uh, does he look, and they say, I think so. Y'all, look, we just gonna pretend like we know who it is. And they say, oh yeah, amen. oh, where you been? Hey there, uh, bucko, I hadn't seen you in a while. And before long, the spoilers blend in to everybody else. All the while, they are of the Philistines. Now, they had one purpose, okay? Verse 19 shows us the purpose of the spoilers. It says, now there was no smith. That's not a last name. That's a job description. There's no blacksmith that is found throughout all the land of Israel because the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. So if you take out the blacksmith, now we don't have access to weapons. Okay, so, so let's, let's re-examine this battle again. 36,000, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 foot uh, uh, horsemen, and then behind that, a multitude that could not be numbered. We only have 600, and while I'm looking around, nobody has swords or spears. Okay, that's interesting. First thing I want to point out here is that it doesn't seem to be that big of a loss whenever the blacksmiths shut down. What, what are we missing? We're missing the tink, 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 tink of the of the, uh, the hammer on the anvil at night. We're, we're, missing, uh, we're missing the blaze of fire. We're missing the glow in the windows. But beyond that, who really cares if the blacksmith goes out of business? It's fine. However, no blacksmith means no swords. No blacksmith means no spears. This is pretty smart by the Philistines. Now, what does, why does this even matter? Where are we getting this spiritual lesson here? I'll tell you, number one, this proves to me that they were not ready for battle. What do you mean? Well, if you're going to wait until the enemy has already ordered themselves and set themselves up in the valley, and you're, if you're going to wait for the army of the Philistines to show up, and then you start looking for swords, there's an issue. The Bible says, take above all, right? the sword of the Spirit, right? That is the Word of God. Take with you the shield of faith. Take with you the helmet of righteousness, the, or the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, the belt of truth. It says you, you need to take all of these things with you, wearing them. You need to wear them every day. Have that sword in your hand every day. Don't wait until the enemy has already gathered his troops and then go looking for a sword. You need to already have the sword with you. If the Israelites had had a brain in their head, they would have realized that their previous victories did not mean they would never have to fight again. Their previous victories are, are stirring things up in the enemy's camps. Their previous victories and singing songs, taking credit for what other people did and, and blowing the trumpet and, and, and doing all of this stuff 
It's doing nothing but stirring up what the enemy is planning. And so what I'm saying there is not that the other battle shouldn't have been fought. What I'm saying is you don't ever have permission to retire from spiritual battle. You don't ever have permission to lay your sword down and never pick it up again. You don't have permission until you die from this earth, until you shed this cor- this carnal frame, until you lay your life down. You don't have permission to to exit the battle and never to pick it up again. Somehow, some way, the Israelites went from winning battles to now all of a sudden, there's no swords and no spears in the land. And it is not until the enemy gathers against them before they even start looking for swords. And what do you know? We don't have any. Why? Wait, where did the blacksmiths go? And what I'm saying is this is the work of the spoilers. They come in under disguise. They come in and you don't realize what they're taking from you because it seems as if the things that they are stopping, the things that they have taken from you, doesn't seem like a big loss. It doesn't seem like that big of a loss in our spiritual walk whenever we stop giving in tithes and offering. It's like, well, you know, there's other people that can give. I'm sure the church will be fine. I'm sure that, let me tell you, folks, it ain't, it, it's not really for the sake of the church. It's for the sake of you because whenever you give, God blesses you. And whenever you surrender your giving to the spoilers, the things that are not very threatening, the things that don't show up at your doorstep wearing an armor, wearing, wearing armor and a helmet and, and swinging a sword, whenever those things show up and they take little things like blacksmiths, things that don't seem to matter all that much. Yeah, sure, I used to worship. Uh, you know, but I don't, I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm grown up in my spirit now. I don't have to clap my hand. I don't have to sing as loud as I used to sing. I've grown up in my spirit. No, let me tell you what has really happened. The spoiler has come and the spoiler has removed your blacksmiths. The spoiler has removed things that you did not count as valuable. And now when it's time for the battle to start, you go looking for the things that you gladly surrendered. spoilers came. They put the blacksmiths out of business. And because of that, now no spear, no sword can be found to defend themselves against the Philistines. But it goes even beyond that in verse 20. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, his coulter, his axe, his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks, for the coulters, for the forks, for the axes to sharpen the goads. What is this talking about? This is uh, you know, we would say this is a list of, of, uh, of items that were, they sound very weird, mattocks and goads and forks and, or like, and coulters and what in the world. These are farming tools. This is equipment to, to uh, till the ground, to sow the fields. And so what this means is that when the blacksmiths go out of business, not only do you lose the ability to defend yourselves because no more swords and spears, but this also means that if Israel wanted to have a harvest, they are going to have to go into the enemy's camp and ask the enemy permission to reap their own fields. They're going to have to go and ask the Philistines how much they're allowed to plow. They're going to have to get their tools from the world. These things ought not be. There are spoilers that have made their way into the church. And no, I'm not talking about people. 
I'm talking about spirits. I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about trends. I'm talking about uh, customs. Those are spoilers. They don't come in by you know, some great uh, announcement, some big fanfare and say, hi, I'm here to destroy the church. But before long, they start taking things out of the church that we don't perceive to be valuable. We don't perceive them to be something that we can't live without. And then when the battle rages on, we go looking for things that were taken out by customs. We, we go looking for things, perhaps I should say, we go looking for results that we could only get if we kept the things that we surrendered to the spoilers. We go looking for miracles, right? We go looking for miracles. That, that's, a, that's a form of harvest. And when we, when we go looking for miracles, we can't find any. And whenever we backtrack, we realize that although we're looking for miracles, miracles happen through prayer and fasting, and we let that go a long time ago. We didn't perceive it to be that valuable. Let it go. It's fine. But when cancer strikes, when the battle is in array, when they've set themselves in rank and, and everything has surrounded you, do you go looking for things that you gave up a long time ago or do you still have that in your hand and you say, I, they tried to get it away from me, but I'm never going to drop my worship. I'm never going to stop giving. I'm never going to, uh, to, to stop my faithfulness. I'm never going to. There are blacksmiths that we need to rehire and there are uh, there are, are kilns that we need to refire. And there are places that we need to get the fire going again. The glowing needs to be in our windows again at the nighttime. We need to hear the clink of, of the hammer on the anvil again. We need, some, we, need some, uh, we need some swords in Israel. We need some folks to go back and get the things that the spoilers took from us. Now, I want to share just one little thing here, and then I'm done. In chapter 14, it says, Now it came to pass upon a day. Sorry, I, I missed one scripture. Verse 22 of chapter 13. So it came to pass in the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, there was there found. That means that only Saul and only Jonathan had a sword. Now, the question is, what does Saul do with his sword and what does Jonathan do with his? In chapter 14, now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, come and let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people that were with him were about 600 men. And so... Jonathan and his armor bearer go across the valley. They go across over to the, the military rankings of the Philistines. All right, look at verse six. It says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with you according to your heart. Now, they, they sneak over there, and Jonathan's the only one with the sword, right? And, uh, and, and the Bible says in verse 12, the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearers. So the Philistines are talking to him now. 
And they said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. That means they're, they're talking trash. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which is a yoke of oxen might plow. That's in the space of a front yard. Uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20. Uh-oh. And there was a trembling, a trembling in the host in the field and among all the people, the garrison <clears throat> and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Now check this out, okay? The watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away. They're looking across the valley and they see all the Philistines. Something's happening. Something's going on over there. Uh, and they went down, beating down one another. The Philistines start killing each other. Okay. <clears throat> then said Saul unto the, num unto the people that were with him, number now and see who's gone from us. He said, let's take roll because something's going on over there. And I don't know that everybody's here. When they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahiah, bring here the ark of God. Verse 19, it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. There's a great noise that is coming out of the enemy's camp now. And Saul said unto the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a great discomfiture Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Did you catch that? Let me translate. That means there were Israelites that joined the Philistines. There were Israelites that opted out and they said, look, if you can't beat them, join them. And they joined the ranks of the uncircumcised Philistines ready and posed to take out their own brothers. But the Bible says, whenever there was a great discomfiture, whenever the trembling happened and the spoilers trembled and, and the swords were turned upon each other, that even the traitors removed themselves from the ranks of the Philistines and they came back to the side of Israel. Even more than that, look at verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in the Mount Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. What does this mean? This means that whenever Saul and his armor-bearer decide to use what they've got, that's my topic for today. Use what you've got. They could have very well looked around and said, um, there's a huge army over there and we have a small army and there's only two of us with swords and one of us two is a dope. He could have easily looked at his sword and said, what is this among so many of their soldiers? But Jonathan realized that if they were going to win the war, 
It wasn't going to be because of his sword. He says to his armor bearer, it might be that the Lord will fight for us. It might be that the Lord will deliver them into our hand. And all it took was a little bit of trash talk from the Philistines. And and, uh, Jonathan goes ahead and declares it. He said, hey, let's hop up. God has delivered them into our hands. You see what I'm saying here, folks, is Jonathan could have opted out. They could have surrendered. And there's no telling what this battle would have been like if they would have had to wait on Saul to make a decision. However, Jonathan looked down and what he had was very little. But little is much whenever God is in it. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go over and in their act of bravery, they, them deciding not to lay down and die. That, that's all it took. They killed 20 bad guys in a half acre of land. And that was enough to tremble 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers greater than the sand on the seashore. Two men were able to cause that much trembling in their camp. And the Bible, I love that part where it says, and even the spoilers trembled. That tells me even the folks that were back in Israel's camp when they heard about what was going on in the Philistines, they even began to tremble. All from two men deciding, I'm not going to lay down and die. Some things have been taken from me. Some things have, the blacksmith, the tools, the the plowshares, these things have been taken from me. And I could choose to just surrender and give, give everything up to the Philistines. But I choose rather to use what I've got and let the Lord make up the rest. There are obvious ties here to all the rest of Scripture. Use what you've got. The widow in the midst of the famine. What do you have? I've just got a little bit of meal, a little bit of oil in a cruise. The prophet says, hey, use what you've got. She bakes him a cake. And next thing you know, she can feed her family through through the rest of the famine. Right? We've got the the little boy that shows up uh, in the midst of 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, as Jesus is teaching. And Andrew comes up and he says, there's a lad here. He's got two fish and five loaves of bread. And he says, what is is this? What What is so little among so many? That doesn't matter whenever God's in the mix. There are times after time after time in Scripture, just a little lad, just a little boy, just a little, you know, it's, it's just a shepherd, just a baby in a manger, just five smooth stones, just a, just a handful, just one sword. You see what I'm saying, folks, is whenever you feel like you're the only one that's fighting, that's the time to fight. Because if you win the victory, it's not going to be because of your swordsmanship. It's going to be because God helped you. But God is going to help those who begin to use what they've got. God is going to help the people that have put to use what they have been given. I'm I'm, last as I close. I'm I'm thinking about the parable of the of the talents. The guy that only had one talent opted out. He said, ah, maybe if I had 10, maybe if I had five. I've only got one. 
And so I'm, you know, I'm going to save that which I do have. You're either going to have that mentality of I'm going to use what I have or you're going to have the mentality of I'm going to save what I have. But the Lord has commissioned you to use it. It makes no sense for us to light a candle and then hide it under a bushel to try to save that flame, save that. No, let it burn. Let it go. Use what you've got. I pray today, I challenge you that you would back up and that you would take a self-examination. I try to encourage you to do this every day. Self-examination. And I want you to be honest with yourself. And for once, I want you to not criticize yourself. For once, I want you to actually edify yourself and say to yourself, what do I have that I can use for the kingdom? What do I... I might not be, you know, the best dresser. I'm not. I might not be, uh, you know, the most eloquent. I'm not. But I tell you what I do have, you know. I've got such and such amount of time that I can devote to intercession. I've got this. You know what I do have? I've got a heart of compassion. And then the next question is, what can I do for the Lord's kingdom with what I've got? that's going to get you somewhere. And so I want you to take some time with the Lord right now. And I want you to to ask the Lord to reveal to you what you do have. And then once he does reveal that, I want you then to say, Lord, how can I use that for your glory? We're the salt and light of the earth. Let's make sure that we affect those around us. I love you all. I pray that you have a blessed day today. God bless you.